Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. So you may already know that for the last couple months, we have been doing a Nerdette book club. The deal is we pick a book each month and discuss it with a rotating panel of awesome humans. Our June pick is Britt Bennett's The Vanishing Half. And sometimes the author even stops by to chat about it. And that is exactly what's happening today. So before we get to the conversation, here is just sort of like a rough premise of The Vanishing Half. It's a novel. It's about two light-skinned black girls who are twins. They run away from a traumatic past in a small town in Louisiana when they're teenagers in the early 50s. They go to New Orleans and one sister realizes she can get away with pretending to be white. So she abandons her entire family. And the rest of the book is about those sisters and their totally divergent lives. It's also about their daughters and identity and what we leave behind when we try to reinvent ourselves. In a couple weeks, we're going to have a very spoilery panel discussion about The Vanishing Half. But today we are going to have a largely spoiler-free conversation with Britt. Britt Bennett, welcome to Nerdette. Hi, thanks for having me. I just love a book about like reinventing yourself and really intense weird secrets. So thank you for providing that. Thank you. I'm glad. So as I mentioned, this book takes place, you know, 50-ish years ago. Obviously, a lot of things have changed since then, but also obviously a lot of things haven't changed since then. And your book came out on June 2nd, which was in the midst of all these nationwide protests around racial justice. You've talked in other interviews about how you didn't expect this book to be as resonant and timely as it is. Right. Yeah, it's it's very surreal, I think. You know, I started writing this book, um, I don't know, four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, I, part of me even wondered if I was kind of, if I was copping out a little bit from, from looking kind of into the present moment by writing huh. a book that's set in the past. Uh, you know, I think particularly as we, moved into 2016 and, and sort of the horrors of that election and, and kind of this rise of, of fascism around the world, I kept thinking like, should I be looking into what is happening here now instead of looking backwards? Uh, so given all of that, I did not expect that when the book came out, people would be framing it as somehow timely um, or that we would be talking about 1968 um, in this really sort of omnipresent way, the same the same week that this book came out. Yeah. Well, and I think probably for a lot of especially white people who are sort of like maybe making these discoveries for the first time, it's like, yeah, no, racism has been a thing for a very, like, of course that's still relevant, right? Like, sure, maybe we don't have like exactly Jim Crow South or segregation, but like there are obviously still a lot of systems at play in this book that we can still see today. Right. And I I think I wanted people to think about those systems um, that exist and 
and not feel distant from the moment. You know, I didn't want people to think like, well, we're not as bad as it was then. You know, I didn't want that to be the feeling of, of kind of relief reading about uh, these moments of very explicit uh, prejudice and violence that these characters are experiencing. Because as you said, um, obviously we're still seeing that type of discrimination and violence today. Um, and it's not something that I think any of us need to feel separate from. It, it implicates all of us in some way. Yeah. So I feel like one thing I really loved about this book is that you're taking down a lot of dichotomies. You know, I feel like this book kind of occupies that space where like two two things can be true, even if they seem like they're opposing. Mm-hmm. And I think especially white people often think of of race as a dichotomy, of blackness as a, as, as a dichotomy, right? Like you either are black or you aren't. Right. And I think like with Mallard, this town that you've created that like is light skinned black people, you're presenting a whole other hierarchy around colorism that a lot of people might, a lot of white people anyway, might not be familiar with. Yeah, I was, I was interested in Mallard as this kind of third space of race. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously race is more complicated than a binary. But when you think about Jim Crow, that was operating very heavily on this binary system. You know, it's, there's a colored uh drinking fountain, there's a white drinking fountain. It was kind of these two sort of categories that you were being pushed into, uh, regardless of whatever, you know, com- more complex make- uh, racial makeup that you that you actually had. Uh, so thinking about Mallard existing in this third space of neither of these categories, that this is a community of light-skinned Black people who uh, feel superior to darker-skinned Black people and don't want to be seen as part of the general Black collective, but at the same time, are not white and will not be treated as white um, and even kind of look down on people who pass as white. You know, that's the idea of of actually passing permanently is something that um, is considered pretty disgraceful within this community. So existing in the intersection of all those, those different things, to me, that became a really interesting way to think about race uh, because it is a bit more complicated than just thinking about the sort of black white binary. Yeah. So, yeah, as I mentioned, as you just mentioned, uh, one of the twins, Stella, passes over and essentially gets away with being white. Why why did you decide to write a book about passing? I mean, this certainly isn't the first book about passing that has ever existed in America. Yeah. Um, but you're you're doing some really interesting stuff with it, it seems like. Um, thank you. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a, there's a long history of passing literature in America um, and you know, it was something that, that was interesting when I started to think about this town and, and this, this community of really light-skinned Black people and thinking about the different paths that one's life could take if you were from a place like that. Mm-hmm. So the idea of having twins and their lives separate, like splitting in these very different directions, one who's marrying um, a dark-skinned man and has a dark-skinned child, and then one whose life is swinging in the completely opposite direction where she passes for white. That kind of presented itself to me early as a possible way to, to enter the story and to you know, think about these questions I was interested in about identity and transformation and, and kind of how we all become who we eventually become. Yeah, so how much, how much of the way you envision the twins is pure fiction versus, like I assume you still did a fair amount of research around like the, the history of like people passing over? I did, I read, I read some uh, texts like Alison Hobbs's A Chosen Exile, which is a really great, um, historical texts on the, the history of passing. Um, and I think also I've been exposed to various sort of fictional stories, whether it was uh, Nella Larson's passing mm-hmm. or even something like Imitation of Life. That was a, a movie I saw when I was quite young. 
Um, and I think that was probably the first thing I ever saw about, about racial passing. Um, so I had kind of this, you know, access to some information about this and, and I did do some reading, but I think what was also became really interesting to me about passing is the kind of unknowability of it, because the only way that you can actually know that somebody has successfully passed um, is if they get caught or if they reveal themselves. Uh, right. You know, we will never actually know the true number of people who have passed, or we will never actually know everybody who has passed, because if they did it successfully, then that means that you won't ever know. Um, so to me, there became something also really interesting in that, the kind of unknowability of this, um, and this idea of just transgressing these racial categories that we are taught to believe are, are stable and, and static. Um, what does it mean to be able to move between these categories? Um, and if you can move between them, then what do those categories even mean in themselves? <laughs> right. Yeah, you've talked about the idea of race being flimsy, which I think is is so perfectly illuminated in this book. And like, right, exactly. Like if you can if you can if you can shift between them, then are they real? And yet, obviously, they're so real because so much of our society is built on those on that, you know, at least theoretical dichotomy, right? Exactly. But, but it's also, that's also like a choice, you know? So that's the thing. It's yep. like yeah. when you have these things, I think sometimes when you say something is like a social construct, people assume that that means that it's fake or it's not real. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, no, the idea of it being a social construct just means that there's nothing inherent or natural about it. You know, mm -hmm. there's nothing, we don't have to live in a world in which it is better to be white than it is to be black. Like that's not just the natural state of things um, and the natural state of being alive. That's something that we have, uh, you know, historically that has been established and historically people have agreed and supported these systems. Uh, so to me, the idea of passing, it's, it's transgressive in a way because you have this person who is moving between these categories and destabilizing the categories by doing that. But at the same time, they kind of reaffirm those categories. Right. So the idea of Stella deciding to become white, it's not that she's actually helping black people by doing this, you know? She's helping herself get ahead by aligning herself with whiteness, which kind of supports the, the idea of whiteness being, you know, the, the, the top of the power, you know, pyramid. So there's something I think inherently contradicting about these stories of passing because they transgress these categories, but they also uphold them at the same time. Yeah, that was the thing that actually surprised me the most, and it probably shouldn't have. Um, but like the idea that for the most part, it seems to me like Stella doesn't actually not only is she reinforcing a lot of super problematic hierarchies, but it also seems like she doesn't even get to like enjoy being white. Like she's not having a good time. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. You know, I think that, um, you know, I, I, Stella is a character that I, I loved writing, but also struggled with writing because, you know, she's a deeply sad woman. It's hard to kind of be in that headspace for a long time. I bet. Um, and, well, and she's the, sad and she's terrified too. She is. She is. And, and I think that that's, that's, you know, important for her because she's, she spends so much time feeling like I'm a fraud and somebody is going to catch me and somebody is going to expose me. She's constantly kind of running and running and running and she can never really rest, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and I think that some of that I think is, is, you know, some of that I think is real. Some of that I think is just in her head. But at the end of the day, she's created this life for herself that is supposed to be safer than the life that she left behind. But at the same time, she has kind of built this fortress around herself where she can't actually let anybody in, not even her, her husband or her child, like not even the people that are closest to her and that she loves most in the world. 
that's kind of the the cost of these choices that she's made for herself. Yeah. And we've kind of hinted at this, but essentially what happens is that while Stella totally relinquishes her identity and her background, in a lot of ways, her twin sister Desiree kind of doubles down on it. Yes. Like the first scene of the book is her coming back to her hometown. She's got her daughter in tow. Desiree, after she had run away, had married what the narrator calls like the blackest man that she could find. Mm -hmm. And her daughter looks much more like him than the people in this light skin community. Can you talk a little bit about like how you envisioned that dynamic playing out? Yeah, I, I, again, like when I started thinking about the book and I thought about these twins going in you know, these very different directions, um, I became really interested in, in the idea of Desiree returning with a child and a child who has to live in this place. Uh, because as soon as you're kind of introduced to the town, to the, these gossipy uh, neighbors that are wondering, you know, who's the child that she's with and what's happened to her, Nobody has seen her in years. They don't really know what's come of her. And she arrives um, very suddenly one day. And not only that, with this child that they're not expecting to see. Um, well, so they're kind of ashamed to see, too. Right? They are. They are. There's, again, there's, um, to go back to this idea of transgressing, you know, there's the idea that she has done this thing, which nobody in the community does or, or is allowed to do, which is that she's married a dark man. Uh, so... The idea that she's married and had a child with a dark man, so she's sort of transgressed the value of the communities in that, in that way. But not only that, she's brought that child back into this community, and now everyone is kind of forced to confront, um, I mean, I hate to use that word confront, but that's how they feel. <laughs> this right. idea that this child who is sort of um, antithetical to their values of what is, what is valuable and what is beautiful now is among them. So they feel kind of personally affronted that they are now having to deal with having a dark child living there. Well, and there's even this paragraph where you're talking about the townspeople and let's see, how does it go They They compare this dark skinned girl who like they don't even put a hat on her and they compare it to one of their uh, town members, townspeople who had gone to fight in Vietnam and came back with one leg. Yes. And yeah. The, yeah. And like he's, they essentially accuse this man of flaunting his one-leggedness. And that's sort of the parallel of what this, what this girl is going through there. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I knew that I wanted to write about colorism and I wanted to push it to its extremes. Um, so whether that meant kind of, you know, thinking about this town where these were not just personal preferences, but like inscribed community values uh, mm -hmm. of, of light skin being uh, preferable. So thinking about the, this being located in the town and then also thinking an extension of that, how this child would be treated when she was there. Um, so, you know, I, I, a lot of that, I was, just, I was just kind of, you know, imagining and, and sort of drawing on, you know, different things that I'd heard growing up, like this, you know, the idea that dark skinned women shouldn't wear red lipstick or shouldn't wear bright mm -hmm. colors or anything like that, that I had heard uh, just growing up. Uh, there are ways in which I think I, I drew on some of that, um, and also just looking at a lot of these uh, like skin bleaching ads, uh, which are so, they're so glamorous. I think that's what's, that's one of the things that's so disturbing about them is that they're always these like, you know, these glamorous images. It's usually a woman and a man together. So there's like, you know, that implication there of this will make you desirable. This is how you get somebody. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, you know, so looking at that and thinking about what it would be like for this child in this space to see an ad like that, you know, so there were some things like that I, I was able to kind of draw on uh, to try to think about how this town would, would see Jude um, and think about how in turn that would make Jude see herself. 
Right. Because that's the other thing about it is that it's not just like that's how she feels whenever she's just in Mallard. Like she takes all of that with her when she leaves for college. Exactly. And I think that that's, you know, we, we are also shaped, shaped so dramatically by how we grow up and where we grow up. Obviously, that's a thing that's true. Uh, but I think when I first started writing the book, I thought that I would spend a lot of time with Jude as a child and Mallard. Um, but later I felt like, you know, this is kind of, I, I just, I don't know if this is just me being like, I don't know, too precious, but I'm like, I couldn't just see this, this kid be like a punching bag over and over and over again. Um, so I decided like I wanted to spend less time with her as a child and more time seeing her as an adult as she has left this place. Um, so I became more interested in, in kind of what happens to her life after she's grown up, you know, you can already imagine how her childhood is going to go. Right. Um, so I didn't need to spend a lot of time showing her being tortured by these people. I wanted to really think about the, the, uh, the kind of aftershock of that as she has grown up, she's become a woman, she's left this place. She knows intellectually that all of this ideology is bad, but she still can't really shake it. You know, she still carries it with her. And she still is constantly, you know, thinking about it with her relationships and her friendships. And when she goes out in public and imagining how people are seeing her, um, just that constant sort of war that she has within herself and the part of herself that knows better. And also the part of herself that was a child in this place and was fed this harmful ideology her entire life. Right. I mean, the fact that she just like laughs whenever anyone tells her she's beautiful, essentially. Exactly. You know, I wanted to think about how how you carry that stuff with you. It doesn't go away even if you've left the place behind. Yeah, no matter how hard you try to unburden yourself from it. Exactly. This book is so much about reinventing yourself, about figuring out who you are versus who you want to be and, you know, what other people say about you. I, I, You have so many beautiful passages about that idea of identity, um, which I always love and find fascinating just because I think it is, it can be so complicated. And, and that idea of like who you really are and who you think you are versus how people see you, I mm-hmm. think is just like extremely complicated and interesting. Um, I feel like it's also extremely American, especially this whole like reinvention thing. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's obviously not uh, like uniquely American, but I do think that that's part of the reason why we have so many narratives about passing. I think that it marries a few very American concepts and obsessions. Um, and two of them are, you know, one is obviously the racial hierarchy, which is a, a beloved American pastime. So there's that aspect of it um, and the kind of rigidness of the of the racial hierarchy and the inability to topple the hierarchy itself. So you're only your only bet to really escape it is to just sort of move into a different category. So there's that element, but then there's also this other element of you can be who you want to be in America. Like you can invent yourself, you Mm -hmm. can create yourself. Um, I think that both of those are these uh, very distinctly kind of American held beliefs um, and that they come together when it comes to the passing narrative, this idea that you can cast away your past and you can become a new person just because you've decided to be a new person. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, the whole reinvention thing, like, it's so, the idea that you can just be whoever you want to be, it's obviously so problematic and yet so alluring too, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think about, you know, the great Gatsby or something, and, you know, mm-hmm. there, there are scholars who think that Gatsby could have been a, a passing black man, you know, mm-hmm. like, I've read sort of those theories about this idea, of, and, it, and it's like, you think about that narrative, there are a lot of the sort of 
the tropes that you find within passing stories of this man and he had this past, but it's murky and you don't really know. And you know, all of this idea of this person kind of emerging from nowhere fully formed and they've become this new person. And you know, it's in some ways, I think a story, it, it shares uh, similarities with these stories of passing in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like one reading into this deeply American um, and beloved American novel. Uh, so, you know, I think that I, I, I love the idea of, of reinvention because I think that it's, it's really relatable, you know, the idea of just wanting to be somebody other than yourself or wanting to be a different person or a new person. Um, it's something that I deeply relate to um, mm-hmm. all the time. So, so <laughs> you know, so I think, you know, it's one of the reasons why I, I love traveling alone because it's like I could be anybody here. Nobody knows who mm-hmm. I am, you know, that, mm-hmm. that freedom that you feel when you have been able to kind of divorce from yourself. Uh, so I think that there's something really relatable about that. Um, but I think the idea of, I think what really interested me was the idea of passing as both an act of self-creation and an act of self-destruction, because yeah. there is something that you have to lose in order to do that. And I think you have like, you've made that very clear in this book, <laughs> you know, like, oh, it was, yeah, it was so heart-wrenching and and fascinating. It really was. Thank you. I mean, I, I appreciate it. I think, you know, for me, I keep thinking, I kept thinking about Stella and like, you know, a lot of the choices that she makes are so unthinkable to me. Uh, and it's not even, a, a, not even only about this idea of culture or loyalty to your community or pride in your race or anything like that. To me, it was this idea of making these choices that would cause you to never speak to your family again. And for me, I have two older sisters that I'm very close to and close to my parents. So the idea of me making any choice that would that would force me to never speak to them again, that to me is something that's so unthinkable that mm-hmm. it, it really gave Stella's choices um, a lot of very real emotional weight when I was writing them. Well, and I think you managed to capture that weight without making it a morality tale, which you've called boring in other interviews. Like it's, <laughs> you know, like I feel like you, I don't know. I mean, I love any good book that just like embraces the whole it's complicated thing. <laughs> And I just think throughout this book on so many different threads and levels, it's just really complicated. Yes. I mean, you know, it gets, I think it gets back to the binary thing I was talking about at the beginning. Like yeah. the idea of this character is good or this character is bad. That, that is boring to read and it's boring to write. Um, yeah. You know, and most of us, you know, all of us, I'm sure exist in that third space kind of between. Um, and, you know, I, I know that generally a lot of passing stories are kind of these moralizing tales where, the person who passes is punished for transgressing these racial categories, which again, like I was saying, that kind of reaffirms the, the hierarchy by punishing yep. the person who has yep. moved between the categories. So because of that, I really did not want to, to punish Stella. Um, that was both a matter of kind of my own opinions about this, but also just aesthetically that's boring. Um, I was way more interested in thinking about what she gains and what she loses in, in deciding to become this new person. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think also exploring the impact then on her own daughter, too, and what that means for her and whether right. that's a good thing. Right. The way that those decisions kind of trickle down throughout generations and her daughter is left kind of trying to put together the pieces of her mother's life that she has no way and no context for actually understanding. After the break, we're going to hear about how difficult it can be to write a second book after the pressures of writing such an amazing first book. And we'll hear about what we can look forward to in book three. 
Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So I have one more question for you before I let you go, which is um, kind of about like your trajectory as an author. So as I mentioned, The Vanishing Half is your second book. You wrote The Mothers uh, several years ago now, and it was phenomenal. It's funny because I was just looking for it on my bookshelf and it's not there, which means I loaned it out to someone and failed to follow up to Dan to get it back, which I think is a good thing, though. I don't know. It would be nice to see it on my bookshelf. Um, but I don't know. I was just wondering, like, I think so often, you know, like a sophomore book after such high expectations from your first novel has to be pretty overwhelming. How did you handle, like, did you feel significant pressure about like what this book needed to be? I definitely felt pressure. Um, you know, I think, you know, when I, when I was writing the mothers, I, I hadn't sold it until towards the very end of that process. So I wrote the majority of the book with no agent, no editor, no expectation anybody would see it, no expectation that anybody who did not know me personally would buy it. Um, I truly was just kind of writing by myself in a room. Uh, but for The Vanishing Half, it, it, it was a book that I was working on in the wake of, of the craziness that became The Mothers. Um, and I think, yeah, it was something that I definitely thought about because I, I didn't want to disappoint people who love the mothers because I, you know, I knew that they they had certain expectations for this book. Um, but at the same time, I knew that I wanted to write a very different book than the mothers. I wanted to write the story that was set in the past. I wanted to write mm-hmm. a story that was kind of multi-generational and that was kind of larger in scale and scope. Um, I knew that it was going to be a, a different sort of book. And, you know, I think that, that that's something that can be difficult when you're working on it. It was something that for me was difficult. I think I, I was fortunate. I had um, a lot of support from my agent and my editor who worked with me on many, many drafts of this book. Uh, but I remember also one of my best friends told me at one point, he was just like, you've never done this before. Like you've never written a second book before. <laughs> so you have to like give yourself, because I kept, I kept saying like, you know, why can't I figure it out? I already wrote, you know, I wrote one book. Why can he's like, yes, but you have not done this before. Yeah. So I think that that was something that I needed to hear and something that I kept thinking of. Yeah, this is, it's a different, doing a second book is a very different animal. I think the the expectations are higher. Um, I think often there, you know, people talk about sort of sophomore slumps. So you're worried about trying to avoid them. Um, There's a lot, it's a lot of mental stuff that I think you have to, you have to kind of push past in order to, to write a second book. So you've never written a third book before either. <laughs> That's true. Um, I hate to put pressure on creators because I feel like it already exists so intensely where I'm like, okay, I finished this book. Now can I please have another book? <laughs> um, but do you have any, like, is there anything sort of like tumbling around in your head about a third book that you might be able to tell us? Yes, I have a, I have a, a quarantine draft of the third book. <laughs> So that's, that's as far as I've gone. I haven't, I haven't looked at it in weeks, but, um, but yeah, I have like a very early draft of the book. And again, it's very different than the mother's in the finishing half. So there's probably going to be some more, you know, mental, uh, 
some more, I guess, psychological work I have to do to, to actually get that book into a place where it's legible and not just this crazy thing I wrote in quarantine when I was trapped in my apartment by myself. <laughs> so I have a long way to go with it. But, but yeah, it's about music. Um, it's about singers who have a lifelong feud. Uh, oh my really God, different. that sounds amazing. <laughs> Thank you. It's a really different book. Uh, but I'm hoping that once all of the the sort of virtual tour for The Vanishing Half dies down, I'll be able to start working on the next draft. Yeah. Well, all I will say is that like, I'm along for whatever ride you're going <laughs> to give me. Thank you. I appreciate um, and I that. feel like a lot of other people are too. <laughs> I appreciate that. We'll see how this, this next one goes. <laughs> Britt Bennett, thank you so much for talking with me today. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Britt Bennett, man, I cannot wait for y'all to read The Vanishing Half. It is so, so, so good. Our panel discussion about this book is coming out Friday, June 26th. We would love to hear from you. Once you read the book, let us know what you think of it. Are there any moments you can't stop thinking about? Are there any topics you want to make sure we discuss? Any personal experiences that reminded you of things that happened in the book? Just record yourself on your phone and email the file to nerdettpodcast at gmail.com. We are recording that episode on Wednesday, June 24th, which means that is your deadline for sending us voicemails. The show is produced by me along with Justin Bull, and our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. Take care, and we'll see you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.